into our bulletin um, that can be found, our connect card that can be found on the inside of our bulletin. Just a couple of announcements for you. You know, we try to uh, park further away to, uh, so that our hosts can use uh, the parking closest. Uh, you know, but if, but if you are, uh, you know, older, if you have trouble ambulating, you know, you, it's too far of a walk, uh, you know, please park closer. Uh, you know, if that is an issue, don't feel like, hey, I have to park all the way out there. Uh, you know, that's, uh, we're dealing with the spirit of the law. So I just want to give you a freedom with that. Um, new devotionals are in. This is a fantastic devotional table talk, uh, which we pay for to make available to you. It's uh, in the table. If you're looking for a good devotional, uh, it has daily readings. It has other wonderful readings you can get from the scriptures. I encourage you to pick it up after the service. Um, we are, uh, there is a young moms group next meeting will be August 3rd, Marissa Kassir and the uh, expanding, I like that our congregation takes seriously the command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it and uh, so uh, if you are a young mom, a young upcoming mom, maybe no uh, moms, uh, you know, that really need to get together. Uh, with other women. This is a great way to invite people to get engaged with our church. That's going to be here August 3rd, 9.30 to 11. And then after the service, uh, we will have our adult education, uh, middle school, high school education hour. We continue to talk about how do we build relationships with people, how do we get close enough with them and safe enough with them where uh, we get the opportunity to share the gospel with them. That's going to be happening after the service. Our high school sits in. We do have middle school ministry as well as our first through fifth graders right in the room right next to where we have adult education. We'll be showing a video. Uh, so if you have a first through fifth grader want to stay for adult education, uh, that'll be right there and they'll be very accessible right uh, next to us. Okay, let's look at our scripture that can be found on the inside uh, of your bulletin. This is uh, Luke 16, 14 through 18. 14 through 18. And in fact, I'm going to read 13 that uh, did not end up in the bulletin. That is my fault. <laughs> These are Jesus' words. Verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. The word of the Lord. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the, uh, uh, the various uh, Republican and Democratic conventions. If you've been glued to the TV watching them. Uh, I've watched uh, a little bit. And uh, it's been interesting to watch them. And... Uh, it seems to me that the purpose of those conventions, not only to try to unify their party, which has been very interesting, is also to put the best face of their candidate forward. You know, in America we have a standard of what it means to be presidential. 
And so the, the various boxes have to be checked throughout that different convention as the uh, potential president is feted before people. They have to be seen as genuine, as uh, real people, as um, honest. And so family members are brought forward to sort of give testimony, to give um, sort of a character reference that these are real people. They have to be funny. They have to be humorous. So they're also making the rounds on the various talk shows. They have to be decisive. Indeed, they even have to be cool. I don't think we have anyone who can play a saxophone in this one, but maybe someone will pull out a, a, a lute or something. I don't know. They have to be cool. They have to make the standard, if you will, meet the standard of presidential acceptability. I think one of the difficulties with this particular convention is to many people, neither of these people make the standard. And so I think it can be safe to say that uh, there are character flaws in both of the candidates. And so some people are saying, well, I'm not going to vote for either of them. Um, I do urge you to vote as a Christian and believer. It's extremely important that you do cast your vote. And we'll talk more about that at another time. But what I want to talk about is standards. Specifically standards of acceptability. We have them for the president and we certainly have them for ourselves. In our little enclave of Virginia Beach and Hampton Roads, we have our own standards of what it means to be acceptable. And back here in this scripture, we see that here what we're really dealing with is a clash of standards. You have the religious elite who are meeting with Jesus who have a standard that they adhere to which they believe makes them holy and you have Jesus Christ who is standing before them and saying your standard is actually an abomination before God's sight this of course is not going over well but it causes us to ask the question if religious people who live a religious life the standard which we think makes someone acceptable for God is an abomination then the question we have to ask is what is the standard that's acceptable for, before God? How are we to live our life? We all have a yardstick, a measuring stick by which we measure our performance and our acceptability before man and before God. Wouldn't it be tragic to get to the end of your life and to hold up your standard before God and realize then that you're carrying the entire wrong standard? And so that is what this is all about. I think it's safe to say that we can understand that whatever the standard of God, it's a standard of perfection. But because of the gospel, we need not live under the standard fearfully, but rather joyfully. And so we're going to take a look at three particular points that I, what I want to touch on. Number one, we've got to see the right standard. What's the standard that we're using? We've got to see the right standard. Two, we have to allow ourselves to be measured by it. How do we measure up, if you will, with the right standard? And then finally, we need to receive God's standard. Because the wonder of the gospel is that it is good news, not good advice. There is a way to be seen as right and good in God's sight. But it's by God's way, not by our own. So let's dig into this. Number one, we have to see the right standard. 
and not given to wrong ones. So Jesus has insulted the people, uh, the, the Pharisees. He says, no servant can serve two masters. You can't be devoted to God and to money or mammon, as Ken was talking about. And the Pharisees react. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of mammon heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now again, mammon is more than money. It's anything that can be considered wealth. So one's reputation, one's the adulation you have, the position that you have. Sometimes we call this psychic income, if you will. Not only what's in your pocket, but your position. And to be sure, the Pharisees had much psychic income. They were uh, the top of the caste system, so to speak. And it says that they ridiculed him. I always am struck by that. Here's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the presence of these people. You know, there's that song by uh, that group, Casting Crowns. By the way, who's coming August 19th to Virginia Beach? I think we should get a group of people and go see them. But they have this song where the singer says, you know, when I stand before God in His presence to my knees will I fall? Will I be able to stand? Will I sing Alleluia? Will I be able to speak at all? What will I even be able to do? And yet here these Pharisees are ridiculing Him. Now why are they ridiculing Him? Jesus said this is the reason. That you are those who justify yourselves before men but God knows your hearts. See, they're ridiculing him because they are justifying themselves before men. They have a standard, if you will, of perfection. And the standard of perfection, the judge and the jury of it, is not God, but rather the crowd, the people. And the people so far are giving them an A+. Look at the position that they hold. See, the Pharisees are the keepers of the law. They're the ones who are supposed to interpret it, the standard that God has given, His law. But they have manipulated it to suit their own purposes. Indeed, Romans 10.3 says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. To them, it's man who decides who is justified, not God. And so they believed they deserved wealth and status because they worked hard for it. To be a Pharisee was hard business. You had to check the boxes. You had to do all the right things. You could only walk a certain distance on a certain day. You could only touch certain things. But they believed that they were righteous because the jury said so. They substituted man for God. Well, mankind does the same thing. It's not just the Pharisees. Our own society has created a standard by who is justified, right? I mean, we all humans understand the need for justification. If I was to go down to the boardwalk and ask someone if they were to go to heaven, very rarely would I give some, get someone to give me an answer uh, that would be something like simply because I am. Well, the answer would be because I'm a good person. I do good things. I meet the standard. And of course the standard is of what's acceptable in society. So we have a scale here in, uh, in uh, Virginia Beach in the Chesapeake uh, Hampton Roads community. And this is sort of to me what the scale looks like. 
you do have religious people. Religion still has some street cred on the streets of Hampton Roads. If you're one of the real ones, you know. If you're a churchgoer, if you take mission trips, if you tithe, if you volunteer, if you're a religious person, then you're sort of up here on the scale, so to speak. But even more, if you're a good person, okay, if you're a good person, if you're a kind person, a friendly person, you help out with the swim team, you volunteer, you love your kids, you're a good person, up you go on the scale. Now, if you're religious and you're good, that's even better, okay? Now you're moving even higher. And then there's wealthy people. Okay, even wealthy people get traction on the scale if they're not scandalous, because clearly God has blessed them. Look, they have wealth. They have status and privilege. And so the ultimate of justification, the trifecta, if you will, is to be religious, to be wealthy, and to be good. Surely these people are justified before God. But God is saying in this passage, it's a lie. Because God knows your heart. See, for us, it's all about actions. For God, it's all about motives. The Pharisees are doing all the right things. But, but Christ says to them in a different passage, you foolish Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup because you think by that you'll be clean. But inside you're full of wickedness and dead man's bones. Clean the inside of the cup and the outside will be clean as well. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. See, we exalt good conduct. You think of the highest ethics of man, what it means to be a good person. You know, if you were to go on Wikipedia and look at the most admired people of the 20th century, I think it's Time Magazine who does this. This is the list. We've got people like Mother Teresa, Martin Luther, John Kennedy, Albert Einstein, Helen Keller, uh, Roosevelt. The basis, though, of how we view them is not on the basis of their heart, but rather on the basis of their actions. But God looks at the motives. And if the motives are wrong, irregardless of the actions, they are as an abomination in God's sight. What does abomination mean? If you were to translate it, it literally means utterly detestable, abhorrent to God. Sacrilegious, there's a religious overtone to it. Whenever uh, Israel would uh, worship other gods, it was an abomination. And we scratch our heads going, I don't get that. Doing the right thing, abomination to God. But God knows your hearts. The reason why it is an abomination to God is because the purpose of life is worship. We were made and designed to give praise to God in what we say, in what we think, in how we live. He is the reason we live and move and have our being. And so the summation of the entire Bible can be found in one 
sentence, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second, being like it to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a command of the hands. It's a command of the heart. See, if we clean the inside of the cup, if we love the Lord our God, we will live holy lives. The inside will permeate to the outside. But the outside doesn't necessarily permeate to the inside. And so God looks at the motives of the heart. The question of why are they doing it? He looks at these Pharisees who apparently are obeying God and doing all of these holy things. But they're not doing them for the love of God. They're doing them to justify themselves. To receive a position before man. They have their own standard and system of salvation. What that means in our world, if you're a doctor working with the organization Doctors Without Borders and going and giving your life in a war-torn country and healing people and loving people and caring for people, if it's not for God, it is an abomination in the sight of God. Because why are they doing it? They're either doing it for themselves to be justified in some way, shape, or form, but they're not doing it for God. In fact, they're ignoring God. And most of all, they're ignoring His Son. See, the work itself might be good, but the attributing to it to them is not. See, by living by a standard that ignores God, we're trampling on the person of Jesus Christ. Basically saying, Jesus, you really didn't have to come. There's no need for you to save anyone. I've got my own system of salvation. I'm working this thing out on my own. The cross is a waste of time. And so the world is in rebellion. Kind of like this. You know what this thing is called, right? called a yardstick, but it's also called a ruler. Very interesting word. Have you ever thought, why do we call it a ruler? It's what we call a king. It's a standard. It's that which rules. And the standard is universal. Twelve inches is a foot wherever you go. A foot by any other name is a foot, I guess. And there is a standard for man. But essentially what man has done is said, I, this is the standard. I don't want to live by this standard. I want to make my own standard. In essence, spitting on the one who made us. And creating our own standard. My question for you, friends, is simply this. What's your standard? Maybe your standard is your friendships. I have a certain number of friends. I'm a well-liked person. Therefore, I'm lovable. Case closed. Maybe your standard is your job. I have an important position. People answer to me. I make important decisions every day. Therefore, I'm important. That's my standard. Maybe your standard's your religious activity. I study the Bible all week. I give religious advice. Heck, I even get up and preach sermons. 
I must be holy. But to God, if that is your standard, it's detestable. And so the first thing we must do, my friends, is we must abandon our standards. We must look through the sham of the games that we play, rewriting the numbers on the ruler to create a new ruler. But I warn you that if you abandon your standard, the world may not look too kindly on you. You're playing by a different set of rules. We've all come up with these rules by committee. Power, wealth, and prestige, and beauty. But we have to stop playing games. Otherwise, you're going to get to the end of your life. And you're going to hold your precious ruler before God, and He's going to say, I don't even know who you are. We have to stop looking at the wrong standards so that we can see and be measured by the right standard. This brings me to my second point, that we must know the true standard. See, the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, who are you to judge us? But Jesus demolishes their standards by upholding the true standard. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. And since then, the good news of the kingdom is being preached and everyone's forcing its way into it. The law and the prophets have been until John, says Jesus. I'm not negating those things. Don't try to put me in a corner where I'm overturning God's law. But I have come to uphold the standard. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than want for one dot of the law to become void. I haven't come to negate the law. I've come to uphold it. In fact, every single small point of it. One dot of the law, in the, in the Hebrew that would be one yod. A yod is a letter. It looks like an apostrophe. It's amazing how much the difference of the Bible would be changed if you changed the yod. Or you changed the letter, right? This promise, this one who will come, the seed of Abraham, or is it the seeds of Abraham? Is it mankind who will overcome Satan? Or is it a specific person? One who we know is Jesus Christ. No, I haven't come to play games with the law like you are doing. I've come to uphold every single bit of it. Indeed, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of God's law to be nullified. Think about that. What are there, six billion people on the earth right now? How many people have lived? How big is the earth? And heaven, all of the angels of heaven, everything wiped away, it's easier for all of that to be nullified. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, says Jesus in Matthew 5. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You know, what is the law? God's law at the end of the day. It's simply the righteous requirements of God. It's simply the blueprint, the DNA of how life is to be, of how we are to live. The law is good. Why would Jesus annul that? There's a moral law that lives in the hearts of man. 
we know good from evil. Codified in the Old Testament and then realized and fulfilled in the New Testament, which explains and fulfills the Old Testament. Why would Jesus want to get rid of that? No, Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Jesus finishes with this statement right after this here. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, my first question is, what does that have to do with anything? Why do you stick this in right here, Jesus? Jesus is making a case in point. Do you know that divorce was rampant among the Pharisees? Sure, some of you are going, really? I don't think so. But on the face of it, it makes perfect sense. Why? Because they're the ones in charge of interpreting the law. And ultimately, when they make the law their own standard, they're going to change it to be whatever they want. See, the original law, Deuteronomy 24.1, which really is just an explanation or a command, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he gives her a certificate of divorce and sends her out of the house, and if she goes and marries another man and he dies, the original husband cannot marry her again. Now, why is that? The reason is because the first time the man already impounded her dowry. In other words, he took the money, he got rid of the woman. And if she goes again, and she goes ahead and receives another dowry, and that man dies, he can't take her again and do the exact same thing to her. God says, you've already done that once. See, this isn't a command to divorce your wife. It's a command to protect a widow. But the Pharisees went to work on this law. Rabbi Hillel, who was highly esteemed by the Pharisees a couple of centuries before, what does it really mean if he finds something indecent about her? It can mean that she's burning your dinner is acceptable. She cooks lousy food. She's rude to your mother-in-law. That's an acceptable reason. She cannot bear children. Or simply you find somebody that you like better. These are all acceptable reasons to find something indecent about your wife. But this is a mockery. Clearly, if we look at the Old Testament, we see that God hates divorce. Because marriage is a picture about faithfulness, and God is all about faithfulness. And so the Pharisees have twisted and shaped their rules to get rid of their wives and to have new ones. This would be a direct insult to these Pharisees. Jesus is upholding the law and expanding the law to its fullness. He says, your laws are a sham, the things that you've come up with. In fact, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, it's the same thing as if you've murdered them. If you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, it's the same thing if you've committed adultery with them, which is a capital offense, by the way, back then. See, the law of God is the standard. And the standard is holiness. And this is love for God to obey His commands. You know, why do we create a new standard? I think the reason is simply this. We're afraid of the true standard. 
We're afraid that we don't measure up to it. And you know what? What? We don't. Whenever God is portrayed in the Bible, you ever notice he's always in dazzling white? There's always light coming from him. Can't people just fall to the ground when they look at him? Indeed, when Moses wants to see God, he says, turn around. Don't look at my face, for no one can see my face and live. We're like a child playing peekaboo that closes our eyes to God's standard and thinks that it disappears. The standard shall live. I was recently in the courtroom. One of my children, who will remain unnamed, had a small traffic violation in which he love taps someone with his Honda Odyssey. It was a small love tap. Nonetheless, being a juvenile, we had to go to juvenile traffic court. And we, for some reason, ended up being last. And so I watched as the young'uns were paraded before the judge and gave their excuse. And it usually went like something like this. But the pavement was wet. And therefore, you know, I slid into the pole. Or I didn't know that you couldn't do that. And the judge had to explain. Ignorance of the law is not excuse of the law. The law stands. And so, friends, we have to do the hard work of getting rid of our standard, of staring into the perfection standard, and being ruled by the ruler, of understanding the position that we do stand before a judge, and that we have no leg to stand on. Well, if I was to end there, this would be a most depressing sermon. But there is one other point, and it's the best point. I love the way Jesus phrases it. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. But since then, in other words, since I have come, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. That doesn't mean everyone forces his way into it. Or in the Greek, everyone is forcing his way into it. The everyone he's talking about are the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners. Okay, they are the ones Jesus even said, you foolish people. You know the law, but you refuse to obey it. Here I am. You refuse to acknowledge that I am the one that the law talked about. And so the prostitutes and tax collectors are entering before you because they heard the message of the good news and they believed it. They repented to be sure of their life, but they understood there is a new way in which I can measure up to the standard. And that way is grace. Because one who has come, rather than throwing away the law, has put it back together, it never was apart, and has fulfilled it. Who's died on the cross perfectly obeying God's law and dying in the place of those who did not. See, Jesus lived the life, the perfect life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. That we would be accepted not because of our record and our accomplishments, 
but rather because of his. And for the prostitute and tax collector at the bottom of the barrel, they knew a good thing when they saw it. See, the door is open for anyone who would force their way into it by bowing their head to Jesus, by sitting under the standard and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and going home justified before God. The deepest desire of your heart, that which will only give you peace, to stand before God and for Him not only not to declare you not guilty, but to declare you righteous and to say we have peace. I love you. I'm pleased with you. And you are holy. We need not jump through the standards of the world. If we throw away the standard, if we rest under God's standard, and we allow ourselves to receive God's grace. It's Jesus that has fulfilled the standard of the perfection of God's law, that we may live joyfully under God's law, not fearfully under it. The law becomes our guide, the path in which we walk, the family rules, not the rules that decide entrance or exit based on how you live that day. Have you experienced the freedom of being judged by God's law and being forgiven by God's grace? Do you continue to live by the standards of the world? Until John, the law and the prophets were being preached. The law stands, my friends, until the end of time it stands. But we are those trusting in Christ who can stand head up confident before God our judge because he's not only our judge but our father why Jesus is so angry at these Pharisees because they're leading the people astray because they're utterly lost Jesus came to find and seek and save the lost. Go home under his rule. Live under the ruler. Not in fear, but in joy. God's grace is for all, for everyone who would call upon his name. This is the blessing and the good news of the gospel and that which is available to all who would hear today. Let's pray.